for the next three weeks as we get ready for Easter Sunday. And we've been studying a series here called The Veil. And what we're learning in The Veil is really more importantly than The Veil is the, is the subtitle of this series, learning how to end our separation from God. We're trying to learn in this six-week series how to go from where we are spiritually to just a little closer to God. So I don't know where you are spiritually right now, but my goal for everyone in the room is the exact same thing, that wherever you are spiritually, by the time we get to and through Easter Sunday, that you'll be a little closer to God spiritually. Let me ask you a question that you don't have to answer out loud. Is it your desire to be closer to God? Because through this series, we learn that it is God's desire to be closer to you. So whether or not you're trying to get closer to God, God's trying to get closer to you, Thanks, Jamie. Um, and, and we're hoping through this series we can learn how to do that together. So we're in Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use as we study the day on the cross that Jesus died in history and what that means for us spiritually. We start in verse 33. We'll go through verse 54. It's where we've been hanging out the last few weeks in Scripture. And here's how it goes. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now from noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them went and ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Verse 54, when the centurion and and those standing with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Of God. Now, if you haven't underlined it or circled it or highlighted it in your Bible yet, verse 51 of Matthew chapter 27 is one of the most important verses in the Bible, if not the most important verse in the Bible. On your sermon notes outline, it actually reads this way in the old King, New King James Version. It says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, for every Jewish person reading this book that Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector, wrote to his friends and his family and his neighbors and his co-workers. So Matthew, a Jewish person, was writing a book to a Jewish nation. They all would have understood Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one to be the most spiritually significant thing that had ever happened in their lifetime. And that was this, the veil that God had put up to divide himself and his holiness and his power and his presence and his mercy, the dividing wall that God had put up between himself and humanity 
Jesus had taken down offering access to God. And we've been saying the last few weeks, the whole key to this series is that because of what Jesus did, we have access to God. But as we read through the rest of Scripture, we realize that this access comes with a specific action plan of how to approach God. God didn't say the gates open, come one, come all, let's have a party. God said, access to me is now available. But as we read through the Old Testament and as we read through the book of Romans and as we read through the book of Hebrews, those great theological books, we read that the access to God is now open, but the action plan for how to approach God with that unlocked door is very specific. And for 1,500 years, people would approach God the exact same way. We've been studying this outline that I gave you that has the tabernacle tent on one side and the temple on the other. If you don't have this, our ushers are going to come down the aisle in a minute. Just wave at them. If you do have this, put it in your Bible, bring it back every week because this is what we're studying. But this holds the key to when the Israelites said, God, we want to know you, God, we want to be with you. Like, how are we supposed to interact with you, God? God said, do this. And he gave Moses the outline of the tabernacle. This would be kind of a portable church. And then later Solomon would replicate that exact layout in his temple several hundred years later. But within this tabernacle and within this temple, God said, here's how I want you to build it so that people will understand how to approach me. Because by understanding how to approach me, they're going to learn a lot about me. They're going to learn a lot about themselves. And we're going to be able to have greater spiritual intimacy once they know themselves the way I want them to know themselves and once they know me the way I want them to know themselves and in this tabernacle in this temple we find five key areas of spiritual significance and understanding that we've been studying the last few weeks and we'll study the next few weeks we saw the basin and we talked about the need for spiritual cleansing two weeks ago we saw the lamp stand that you can see in the tabernacle and in the temple that gave light to things and we talked about the lamp stand last week this week we're going to talk about the table of showbread next week we'll talk about the altar of incense the whole topic of next week is going to be how to communicate with God and how to pray and how those things work. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about how the veil was torn, how access to God was granted, and how when when we take access from God, it ends up in, in action from God in our life, and it just changes everything. But today, we're going to talk about this table of showbread, which I think you'll see on the screen behind me. We've got a little picture of it. And this, this little article that you can see in the tabernacle, the table of the bread of the presence is what your outline says. And here you can't see it very well because the temple is so much grander. But we're going to study about this little table that had a few loaves of bread on it. And what we're going to learn is going to be amazing spiritually. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip back to Exodus chapter 25. Because in Exodus chapter 25, we learn kind of the, the ins and outs, the details of how God wanted this tabernacle put together that would eventually become a temple that would model for us for more than 1,500 years how we were to approach God in a manner that would help us understand us and help us understand ourselves. And in Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 30, God says part of the tabernacle needs to be this table of showbread. And here's what he said. Not, not real exciting if we're just reading the book of Exodus. But if we put this in context with everything we know and are learning about Jesus... The lessons from it become pretty outstanding. God said to Moses, now make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also, make around it a rim of handbreadth wide, a rim a handbreadth wide, and put a gold molding around on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used for carrying the table. 
and make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and carry the table with them, and make its plates and its dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of the offerings, and put the bread of the presence on this table before me at all times. Now, if we just read that in context in Exodus chapter 25, it's like, cool, we had a table, we put some bread and some, and some utensils on it. What's the big deal? When we understand the spiritual significance of the table of showbread, and when we understand how that helps end our separation from God, or it moves us a step closer to God, thus at least shrinking our separation from God, becomes a pretty big deal. And I think this table of showbread teaches us three lessons that I just, I have to believe every one of these lessons is meant for someone in here today. One of these three things is going to kind of stick to your heart spiritually, and I hope it ministers to you every day this week, and that it'll kind of stick in the mind for the rest of your life. The first thing that the table of showbread teaches us, the first lesson is this lesson of provision. Now, the word provision comes from the root word provide. And the thought of the table of showbread is God wanted the people to remember that he was going to provide for them. And here's, here's what's crazy. God was talking to people who believed that God had provided everything that they would need spiritually But while it's ironic, it's also a reality that people who sometimes have a great intimacy with God spiritually are still concerned with the little things in life that they're unsure of. In the table of showbread, God said, every time you you see this, you're going to remember that I'm going to take care of you. Now, I just have to believe there's someone in the room who walked in this morning who is wondering, you've got something going on in your life, you wonder if God's aware of it and and if he can take care of it. And God brought you here today to allow you to reflect on the table of showbread to say, listen, I'm going to take care of this. Just trust me with it. I'm going to take care of this. If you're like me and you have kind of a worrying nature, like I need a table of showbread that sits right beside my alarm clock because I usually begin to worry about stuff that God may or may not take care of about the minute that I wake up. And I could probably use another table of showbread kind of beside my sink because when I'm brushing my teeth and I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I start thinking about how old I'm getting and I I can see gray hair and it's like, man, I'm gaining weight. Man, am I going to have a heart attack? And, you know, what am I ever going to have retirement? And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I need one to remind me not to worry about the stuff in my life. And I could probably use a table of showbread that kind of sits out in my front yard because... With the, with the craziness of the world that we live in, there's not been a day my kids have left for school since Sandy Hook Elementary shooting that I don't pray that God will keep my kids safe and get them home on the bus. Because I just know we lived in a jacked up world with jacked up people. And I need to be reminded every day that God loves my kids. I have to know that he loves my kids. And I could probably put a little table of showbread in my truck. Because a lot of the appointments that I go to, I'm concerned about how those things will turn out. And I could probably sit one on my office at work so that I can be reminded as things come across my desk that God is going to take care of those things. God wanted the Israelites to know that, listen, I'm going to take care of stuff. And Jesus wants you to know that he's going to take care of stuff. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, listen, it's going to be important for you to pray every day. Matthew 6, 11, give us today our daily bread. I want you to know I want you focused on your daily needs, but I want you focused on the thought that if you'll give them to me, I'll take care of them. Later in Matthew 6, he said, so pray this and don't worry, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Jesus said, listen, I know you're worried about your stuff, but if you'll just give it to me, I'll take care of it. Now, I don't know that anyone worried more with less cause for worry than the nation of Israel when God initially gave this table of showbread. 
He had led 2 million people out of Egyptian slavery. They'd been in slavery for more than 400 years. He had, he had allowed them to escape the most powerful army in the world at the time, the Egyptians. He led them through the Red Sea. Scripture said that he actually parted the Red Seas. They walked across on dry ground. Then it fell back on the Egyptians. I mean, these Israelites that were worried that God would help them had physically seen with their eyes the ten plagues of Egypt. They had physically walked through an ocean that had been divided for them to walk through and then seen it fall back in place. Like, if anyone had ever experienced God, these people would experience God. Yet every day they woke up worried that God wouldn't take care of them. You know, that God got them out of Egypt and they got them through the Red Sea and they woke up the first day and they thought, oh my gosh, we're in the desert. We, like, we are going to die of thirst. And they went to Moses and said, we're going to die. Like, this is their theme verse. We're going to die. And Moses is like, we're not going to die. He's like, well, we don't have any water. And God's like, all right, hit the rock, bang, water. There you got water. And they go, oh. And then a few days later, you know, it was like, we don't, we don't have any food. We're going to die. And Moses is like, listen, you're not going to die. And he went to God and he's like, listen, they think they're going to die again. And, and here's what God said for Moses to do, which would later lead to Jesus teaching us how to pray. In Exodus 16, 4, the Lord said to Moses, listen, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people were to go out each day and gather but just enough for that day. So God set this precedent that when you're worried about him taking care of you, he's going to take care of you, but it's going to be in 24-hour cycles. He told Israel he was going to give them bread daily so that they wouldn't have to worry, but at the same time so that they'd live to learn in 24-hour trust cycles. So they would wake up and say, all right, God, if you don't do it today, God, it's not going to get done. And then they get to the end of the day and say, all right, God, you did it. Thanks again. And God taught the Israelites that if they were going to worry, if they were going to pray, that they just needed to pray for bread every day. Jesus rephrased it and said, pray for daily bread. But the thought is the same. From God in Exodus to Jesus in Matthew, there's this thought that we're worried God's not going to take care of us. And God said, listen, I will take care of you. And the first spiritual application that someone in the room needs to hear today is that the table of showbread is a constant daily reminder that God is going to provide for people's needs. He's going to take care of people. But it wasn't just a reminder about physical needs. The real reminder of the table of showbread was about spiritual needs. And more than spiritual needs, it was about this thought of having a relationship. And that's the second lesson we learned from the table of showbread. In John 6.35, after Jesus fed everyone loaves and fishes, again, Jesus is dealing with people who don't have anything to eat. And he prays and he has a few loaves and a few fish and he breaks them and he feeds 5,000 people. And by the way, in the table of showbread, according to scripture, there were 12 loaves that sat on the table of showbread. God reminding the people of Israel that he was aware of basically every tribe, every state, every city that was represented. He said, so when you see that, that, those 12 pieces of bread, you're going to know that I'm aware of what's going on. I'm going to take care of you. So Jesus, thousands of years later, he feeds 5,000 people and it said there were leftovers that day. And guess how many basketfuls of leftovers they picked up after that day? Can you guess the number? It was 12. It was Jesus saying, when you realize that there's always 12, it's just a reminder that God's going to take care of you. But he said, this is not a lesson about food. Jesus said, this is not the food network, right? Like Jesus was more spiritual network than food network. And in John 6, 35, when he said, I'm the bread of life, he wasn't saying you need to eat me. He was saying, you need to trust me spiritually because this table of showbread is about relationship. Every Sabbath, 
which was and is Saturday, really it's Friday night to Saturday evening in Israel, the priests would gather to eat bread from the table of showbread together as a reminder of God's covenant promise to be with them. They literally, at the end of every week, they would stop everything and they would eat the bread and basically celebrate the friendship that they had and celebrate that God had taken care of them another week. And it was a ritual in Israel that every Sabbath you would stop and you would have a meal to celebrate what God had done for you and the family that he had given to you. And many times in Scripture, throughout ancient history, a covenant was sealed and confirmed by a meal. In Genesis fourteen eighteen, Abraham and Melchizedek um, sealed a covenant with a meal. In Genesis eighteen seven, Abraham and the angel of the Lord, when he asked him to protect his relatives in Sodom and Gomorrah, they sealed that covenant with a meal. In Genesis 26, uh, 30, Isaac and Abimelech agreed to share a well in a part of town where each of them had had trouble getting water, and they sealed that covenant with a meal. And in Exodus 24, when God told the people, I'll be with you if you'll just follow me, the people said, we're cool with that, and they, and they shared a meal together. In Exodus 24, 11, it said God didn't raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, they ate, and they drank. So we, we see that when, like when the work is done and you're just ready to hang out with someone, you sit down and you have a meal. And the Sabbath day and the Sabbath meal would remind the priest to make time for a relationship with God. And I actually changed that word in that blank as I was going over kind of my third revision for this Bible study. I had initially the Sabbath day and the Sabbath meal would remind the people to take time. And I thought, you know, that really sounds like like you need to kind of find some time. And the reality is we all live in a world with no time. No one in this room probably really has time to be here today. All of us have other stuff that's going on in our lives if we were to be real honest. But it reminds us this table of showbread that we have to make time for God. Now this concept in the Israeli culture is quite annoying when you're a tourist there. We've taken 25 people in our church over to Israel the last two years. And the most difficult piece of planning in the Israel trip is what to do Friday night. Because the Sabbath officially starts in Israel. When you can see the first star on Friday night, the Sabbath has begun. When you can see the first star on Saturday night, the Sabbath is over. So it's, a, it's an odd 24-hour cycle that shifts a little bit. But when the Sabbath begins, everything in the country closes. You, you can't, like, check into a hotel they kick you out of the national parks. There's no gas stations open. There's no rest, stations, rest stops uh, open. Um, there's no restaurants open. You can't go shopping. They tell you, if you run out of gas Friday at 9 p.m., you're not going to get it till the next Saturday. I mean, the whole world shuts down. You can't go see a movie. You can't go watch the national team play basketball or soccer or cricket, which they play over there. I mean, the whole world shuts down. So when you're leading a tour group, and you're driving from one city to another, it's very annoying to try to figure out what time you have to leave, what time you have to get to the hotel before the star comes out, and then whether or not they'll feed you. Some hotels will cook food, others will not, and you just have to eat bread and stuff that's been made two or three days because they won't even cook on the Sabbath. It's very annoying in your planning for your trip. So we get to this hotel this year in Haifa, which is in northern Israel, and it's one of the few places that has a big Sabbath banquet in their, in their hotel restaurant every Friday night. It was really difficult to get in and make a reservation and ask, you know, why, why is it so hard like we're guests at the hotel to get a reservation? He said, oh, everyone in the city comes to celebrate uh, the Sabbath meal here. And I said, why? And he said, it's just what we do. And I thought, all right, whatever. So, you know, I, you know, I go down to the restaurant. We have our little table of 16. 
And I began to watch as these families came in together, large families, parents, grandparents, grandkids, great-grandkids, all dressed up, all around meal. And they were, they were singing songs together, and they were reciting scripture together. And I mean, they spent hours feasting at this buffet. And it hit me. I, I stopped and I looked. And I thought, the, the only thing in American culture that this reminds me of is Thanksgiving Day. And I thought, we live in a culture that one day a year stops to be thankful for family, for country, for food. Like we shut everything down. One day a year to have a meal and just be thankful. And they do it once a week. And I really kind of got bitter at the American culture that we are so busy, that we have so much going on, that what God commanded us to do once a week, we do once a year. And I don't know about you, but I love Thanksgiving. I mean, I think every Friday night, Danielle should make turkey and gravy, and there should be two football games on, and, and no one should call me, and I shouldn't have to call any. Like I, how different would our world be if we had Thanksgiving once a week instead of once a year? And see, the table of showbread teaches us that God wants us to take time for him. And God needs us to make time for him. In a culture that says you need to hurry up and serve us now. This week, uh, Major League Baseball started their 2014 season. And the second baseman for the New York Mets, his name is Daniel Murphy. His wife was pregnant and she went into labor the night before opening day. And he left his team in New York City and he went to be with his wife on opening day. She had kind of a hard labor. He stayed with her opening day. He stayed with her the second day. He stayed with her until she got checked out of the hospital and went home. And then he went back. He missed two baseball games out of what would be 162 this season plus playoffs if they make that. And I'm telling you, the media in our country killed him for it. I mean, they just said, this is the worst teammate in the world. This guy didn't care about baseball. He didn't care about his team. He didn't care about the city. He didn't care about the organization. And for two days, all anyone talked to talked about was what a horrible person that this was, that he would miss opening day for the birth of his first child. One very well-known announcer even said if he really cared about his baseball team, he would have made his wife, who had a natural delivery, just get a C-section a week before the season started so he could be there for opening day. Yeah, that's only six weeks of recovery. That, I mean, what a, what a smart statement. We live in a culture that basically says, I own you, get in your place. And you know what? When they interviewed this guy, they said, you know, what do you think about all these people and all that everybody's saying? And he basically said, I don't care. He basically said, they can stick it. I really don't care. It was my wife. It was my son. I'll do it any day of the year if I have to. I could care less what people are telling me about how I need to live my life. And I look at this table of showbread, and you know what I realize? We as Christians need to take back our spiritual time and our family time from culture. Because everyone in the room, if you were to ask, why aren't you closer to God? You say, ah, I'm really busy. Why aren't you closer to your family? Well, I'm just really busy. When are we going to let culture stop telling us what to do? And when are we going to say, no, this is the schedule I'm setting. And if this doesn't work for you, then I can't work at that job. And if this doesn't work for you, then I'm going to have to go do something else. And if this doesn't work for you, my kid can't play on that team. I'm not going to let you run my life because the school will run your life and your kid's sports will run your life and your job will run your life and your friends will run your life and your neighbors will run your life and your bank account will run your life. I mean, people just don't care. And the table of showbread says, just shut it off one, one day a week, shut it off and just enjoy God and enjoy your family. 
And you know what? We live in a culture that doesn't allow us to do that, but either we've got to take back what's ours or we've got to just keep giving it away. The reality is when we look at how to have intimacy with God, Jesus, according to Scripture, is relational. And what's interesting, looking at the priest and then putting it onto the life of Jesus, much of the ministry of Jesus is seen in his meals, not just his teaching. We see Jesus constantly having meals with people. Jesus doesn't just want a little bit of your time. He wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. In Luke 19, 5, he tells Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. I need to pray with you. I want to come have lunch at your house today. I want to have a meal with you. In Matthew 26, he didn't tell his disciples, we need to go convert two or three more people because I'm getting ready to die. He said, let's shut the whole world out and just have dinner together. And what we celebrate is the Last Supper. In John 21, I'm sure Jesus had a lot to do, but he joined his disciples on the beach and said, let's have breakfast together and just spend time together. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus had to get back to Jerusalem to see his disciples, but he took time to go in and have dinner with these people. And in Revelation 3.20, Jesus doesn't say, I want you to say a prayer and raise your hand. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and have a meal with you. I want to spend time with you. I don't just want your heart. I don't just want a little time in your schedule. I don't just want a piece of your week. I want to hang out with you. I want to get to know you. And man, we live in a Matthew 22 culture when Jesus giving a parable about how people just don't have time for God. So Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and calf have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet, but they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. How much more time in your life are you going to give to your business instead of God? How many more hours in your life are you going to give to your business instead of your family? How much more of your time are you going to spend working on your thing instead of giving God any time in your life? You see, the table of showbread reminds us that once a week, the priests who were the busiest people in Israel with the most important job, once a week, they shut it down. And they just spent time with each other and they just spent time really reflecting on God and being thankful. Man, you think there'd be less divorce in our community if we had Thanksgiving once a week rather than once a year? You think there'd be less financial stress in our community if we had Thanksgiving once a week instead of once a year? You think kids would enjoy their families more if we had Thanksgiving once a week instead of once a year? You think you'd take more naps if you had Thanksgiving once a week rather than once a year and maybe be just a little more mentally sharp and mentally healthy? You see, God has given us this tremendous formula not only to, for our lives and our families, but for him. And the reality is most of we don't have we don't have time to do it his way. We don't have time to do it his way unless we make time to do it his way. And some of us need to begin reformatting our life Because the American way is not the best way to love God and to love your family. You know, as we read through Scripture, Jesus is that kid. You know, we all have that kid in our neighborhood that wants to come over to the house and play with our kids. Or we have those people who are always going door to door. Like Jesus is that kid who shows up every day after school. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. He wants to hang out every day. Jesus is that kid, like when you see him coming, like you, you know, you hype, you put your hand over the dog's mouth, you're like, shh, just, you know, don't make any noise and they'll go away. Like Jesus is that kid who every day wants to hang out. 
And most of us don't have any time for him. And God says, if you want to know the action plan for approaching me, you have to make time for me. The spiritual application of this table of showbread in relationship is it reminds us that God is looking for people who will make time for him in the busyness of their lives. Your life will not stop. It's time we take control back from people who want us to work a little more, a little harder, who want our kids to practice a little more, play, play a few more turns. We have to take our lives back and say this is the way we have to do it to honor God and our families the way we, want, we believe God wants that to happen. And then number three, the, the table of showbread teaches us partnership. And I want to be honest. I, when I begin to study this text this week specifically for this Bible study today, I did not know anything that I'm getting ready to share with you. And like a light has come on for me spiritually. In each message that I have given in this series, I've learned something as a Christian, not as a pastor, as a Christian that I never knew before. And like I got all kinds of like lights going off spiritually, teaching me how to be closer to God. So I, I hope you're learning like I'm learning. But this thought of partnership, I never knew. I had never seen it. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why before I jump into it. If you take that little picture that I gave you, there's, a, there's an unbiblical representation of the table of showbread in the tabernacle, and it's the only one I've ever seen. And because of that, I missed what I'm getting ready to teach you. There you see the little table of showbread, and all it is, it looks like a little flat table with 12 pieces of bread on it. But that's, that's not actually what the Bible says the table of showbread looked like. In Exodus 25, 29, Scripture said, Make its plates and its dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and its bowl for the pouring out of the offerings. The actual table of showbread looked look like this. It wasn't just bread. It was bread on golden plates, had cups, it had pitchers. And those cups and pitchers were specifically, according to Scripture, for the drink offerings that would be offered. Now, I've got an undergraduate degree in Bible, and I've got two seminary degrees in Bible, and I've been teaching the Bible to students and people for 15 years. And this week when I began to study this, I had no clue what a drink offering was. I had never looked it up in a Bible dictionary to see what it was or how it worked. I'd heard of it. I didn't know what it was. And when I learned what it was, I thought, man, that is cool. A drink offering in Scripture is the least of the offerings that could never be offered on its own, but it was always added to a larger offering as a small part of it. So it was like the least valuable offering. It, it, it was like, it had such little value that you couldn't present just a drink offering. But when a drink offering was added to something, it was like someone who cared enough to take the extra time to do something special. Now, I knew Philippians 2.17, but it meant something totally different when I understood what a drink offering was. The apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. Some of the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote were to a young apprentice of his. His name was Timothy. 2 Timothy was the last book that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy 4, the verses in it were some of the last verses he ever wrote down. He said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. The drink offering on the table of showbread teaches us that basically without Jesus, we're worthless spiritually. But when our life, spiritually, is added to what Jesus has done, we can have value spiritually. The drink offering allows us to partner with God by doing our little part. 
And it reminds us that we can do nothing alone, just like John 15, 5 says. So that priest would walk in there and see that drink offering and be reminded that when the Apostle Paul says, my life is a drink offering, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, by myself, I'm worthless spiritually. But with Jesus, I can get engaged in the game of what's going on. The Apostle Paul took it a step further in Philippians 2.17. He said, even if I am the very least of what's going on spiritually, he said, when I'm added to what other Christians are doing in their faith, man, it becomes a presentable offering to God. So it presents this spiritual fact that we need we. Now, it sounds like I'm speaking French because the fill in the blanks are we, we. I mean, you know, we need we. My PowerPoint person contacted me last night. They're like, hey, I think you made a mistake there. Is this supposed to say that? I said, yes, it's supposed to say that. We spiritually, listen to me now. We spiritually, if we're going to have an impact spiritually, we need each other. I don't just need you and you don't just need me. We all need each other to make real spiritual impact in this world. The reality is, you know, a lot of people look at the pastor as the most significant part of the church. The pastor is not the most significant part of the church. The people are. And if you want to see that, let's do this. If you take me away next week and I never come back, but you all keep pursuing the mission we've set, you will accomplish way more without me than I will accomplish if I show up next week, but none of you are here. My preaching and teaching doesn't matter a bit if we together aren't moving in the same direction. I am just a small part, a very small part of what's going on here. But together, we're doing some pretty big things spiritually. So you say, okay, well, what's my part spiritually, Christian? I believe for us living in this great country, the United States of America, and in a pretty good community here in Lee Summit, Missouri... I believe that our part, if you would ask me, Christian, what's my part spiritually? What's the little part that I can play? I would say this, God wants our affluence and God wants our influence. God wants our affluence, what we have, and he wants our influence, who we have the ability to impact. Now, some of you are sitting there. You've already checked out because you say, Christian, I'm not affluent. You're talking to the wrong person. I might have influence, but I do not have affluence. I'm not wealthy. Listen. By your standards, you may not be affluent. But by God's standards, you're some of the richest people on planet Earth. Let me remind you what I said in our generosity series, okay? Less than 5% of the world has the following material things. And here's what I mean by that. If you lined up 100 people across the globe, only five, only the top five wealthiest would have these things in their life. So if you have these things, these, these five things in your life, then you are affluent by the world's standards. Now, there are some in our church. I bet 5% of our church does not meet these standards. And we need to figure that out, and we need to help those people spiritually. But according to Scripture, and according to the data that the world has, probably you're in the top 5% of the world. So out of 100 people, 95 in the world do not own two pairs of shoes, So if you have more than one pair of shoes, that puts you in the top 5% of wealthiest people on the globe. Most people are wearing a pair and have a pair of work boots in their truck, a pair of golf shoes in their golf bag. Less than 5% of the world has a consistent food source. 
which means they have the ability to have food every day. Less than 5% of the world has housing or a shelter, permanent shelter that they can live in. Less than 5% of the world has clean water that they have access to on a daily basis. Less than 5% of the world has any medical care whatsoever, paid or unpaid. They just don't have access to medical care. Less than 5% of the world has multiple pairs of clothing that they wear. And less than 5% of the world has opportunities and access to education. So let me ask you again. According to global standards, are you affluent? Like, do you have more than enough for today? Because Scripture says Christians with more than daily bread, like if you've got enough food in your pantry to last you today and tomorrow, you've got enough to share. If you've got enough food in your refrigerator to last you today and tomorrow, you've got enough to share. If you've got enough money in your bank account to last you today and tomorrow, you've got enough to share. Now, I'm not saying live one day at a time, give everything away. I'm just saying you have to realize if God has blessed you to be in the top 5% of the people on the globe in material possessions, perhaps the light should go on that you can help someone who's not there yet. Christians with more than daily bread are to work to be aware of and engaged in helping others without that same reality. That's what I mean when I say God wants your affluence. He wants you to realize I've been blessed and I can help someone else. Because when one person realizes that, that's a big deal. But when a group of people realize that, together we can do more than any one of us can do alone. And more of us together can do much for what's going on. So we're meeting with architects and we're getting ready to build a building that I'll be very honest with you, that I have no deep-seated spiritual desire to build. I would, if God allowed us, if some school would sign a 25-year lease with us and give us all the space we needed, I would never build a building. I think the world has too many of them that are, that are just out sitting around. However, I know just from what I know about churchianity, I know that if we build a building that meets all of our needs and gives us all the space we need, I know God's going to add people to our church. I know that we're going to go from where we are to twice what we are to three times what we are to four times what we are if we have space for that one day and, and people don't have to sit in a metal chair and they got a little pad. I just know it's going to add people to our church. So, so you're building a building because you want more people in your church. No, I really could care less about having more people in our church. But I realize the impact we're having in our community right now is not enough. And we need more people to help us do more. Let me give you an example of that. One of the ministries that we support locally is a ministry called Cold Water. Cold Water connects with harvesters downtown, a food distribution bank, to make sure that kids in Lee Summit who don't have daily bread, who don't have enough food, get to eat. Harvesters in the state of Missouri have figured out that there are 700 children in the Lee Summit School District who they've declared chronically hungry, which means they have no food at their home. They only eat at school. They breakfast and lunch on state-sponsored lunches every Monday through Friday at school. And this reality came. Somebody had the idea, well, what do they do when they go home? And someone said, we got to feed them on the weekend. So they created this back snack program, which is metro-wide now. And they give these kids, when they go home and get on the bus, they give them a backpack that has dinner Friday, three meals Saturday, three meals Sunday, gets them back to school Monday, and they, they feed them every weekend. And then someone realized, well, what do they do in the summers when no one can give them the backpack? And cold water last year came to us and said, we want to start a summer lunch program. We think we're going to serve more than 3,000 meals, but it's brand new. We have no budget for us. And we talked to our finance team and our church. Your offerings underwrote the entire summer lunch program. 3,300 meals were served last summer to kids who wouldn't have eaten because you give. Now, that, that's awesome. 50 kids in Lee Summit 
We'll eat three meals today because you give. Our church sponsors 50 kids, $10,000 a year. Of the 700 kids currently chronically hungry in Lee Summit right now, do you know how many are not on the back snack program because of funding and resources and people right now? 390. There are 390 kids that go to school with your kids and my kids who today don't have anything to eat. And we can take that $78,000 need and we can take an extra offering and divide it up. Or we can say, let's add more people and let's just all do our part and let's have more of an impact. You see, we need we. And we need more of we. And then we need more of we. Because guess what? We don't just represent Lee Summit. What about the kids at Raypeck? What about the kids at Belton? What about the kids in Independence? What about the kids in Blue Springs? See, if we really believe that people who have more than enough should be, should be helping people who don't have enough, then we've got to be aware of these needs. And it doesn't matter how big our church is. It doesn't matter if we're in a building or not in a building. We've got to be aware that there are needs that we have to meet. And if we have to get bigger to meet more needs, then we better figure out a way to do that because it's not right that in this community, kids who go to school with our kids don't have anything to eat today. That can't be. That cannot be. And we're not in control of all of it, but I promise we'll do our part. We need we. I need you to help with that. And we all need each other to just pitch in a little bit so we can do more. And every year we try to figure out how to do more. God's called us to help people, but we need people to help people. So we leverage our affluence and then we leverage our influence. You say, what is influence? I mean this, spiritual influence. Christians who have relational influence with non-Christians need to be aware of and engaged in that opportunity. That presents an opportunity for you. If I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I love helping people, and I know someone who's a good person, but maybe they're not connected spiritually, they're not really engaged in what's going on, but I know they'd like to be, I need to figure out how to engage them in what Jesus is doing. That's why we created these little business cards. We print all this stuff that so many people take and throw away, but what if each of us would actually give one of these out? And what if actually, what if, what if we'd give three out? What if one person actually came with everyone in our church on Easter Sunday and half of them stayed? And then of those half, half of them began to give $10 a week. We'd be able to help more kids. We'd be able to, to help more orphans in India. We'd be able to do more missions work in Africa. See, the way we grow our impact is by taking advantage of our influence and helping build what God is doing. See, we're not on a goal here to have the biggest church. We're not on a goal here to have the best church. We're on, a, we're on a mission here to help people. And if we realize it takes people to help people, if we realize that we're just a little piece of it, a little drink offering, but we'll be our piece, God, you can dump me out. I don't have a lot, but what I have, you can have access to. Some of my affluence, some of my influence. God, use me. Like the Apostle Paul, I think we can have great, great, great impact for Jesus. Our mission statement as a church We're not just trying to have church. We're trying to be on a mission. We want to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. Your influence can help us reach people who are far from God. God's influence in their life can help them make a difference with hurting people. I really believe that. That's how it works. In Revelation 21.3, John talked about what the world would look like one day when God sent Jesus back and he perfected eternity. And, And John said, it's going to look like this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and God's going to dwell with them and they're going to be his people and God himself is going to be with them and God will be their God. John said there's going to be one day when people actually live with God. 
But in Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus tore down the veil, Jesus said, you can do that now. You don't have to wait for the end. You can now really live with intimacy with God. The table of showbread teaches us you can trust God. The table of showbread teaches us that you can know God more intimately than you know him if you'll make time for him. The table of showbread teaches us that you can partner with God to make a huge impact in the world for people that God wants to help. The question is, will you or or will you engage the next step? Or will you allow God to have some of your affluence or your influence? Or will you trust God with the thing that you're worried about? Or will you give God a little more time in your day? That's the question. And that demands a moment of spiritual reflection to kind of think through that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes.